Good morning. My name is Peter Hess, and I work with the National Center for Science Education in Oakland, California, to promote and defend the teaching of evolution in public schools. And in that capacity, I also look at environmental issues and at issues regarding the long-term future of the human species on Earth. For the last three or four years, I've been working with a colleague, Richard McDonald, a physicist and oil investor from Berkeley, California, now living in San Francisco, who unfortunately could not be here for this ASA meeting. We met about four years ago when uh, he was the coach for my son's cross-country team, and we found that we had a common interest in issues surrounding resource economics and the future of oil. And I had recently become uh, aware of the impending end of affordable oil through a variety of books that I had been uh, pointed to. And Dick, uh, as, he, uh, as he prefers to go by, uh, likewise had been noticing that he'd been investing in more dry wells than in oil-producing wells. And so we began a long conversation about oil and economics and the future of the human species and human overpopulation and a variety of very interesting and significant topics. I'd like to begin, as I frequently do in teaching, with uh, a cartoon. This is from um, one of my favorite cartoonists, Bizarro, showing evolutionary progress from the primordial ooze to humanity, to humanity beginning to foul its own nest by polluting the oceans. And it's a rather uh, interesting take on things and rather sobering for those of us with concern for the long-term future of the human species. I like to point out that um, both oil uh, and humanity are historical products of evolution. We know that petroleum has a history, um, many hundreds of millions of years of sunlight being captured by plants, um, prehistoric plants, and uh, over uh, many millions of years being cooked into oil and gas and coal, which then we have uh, come to uh, exploit and use in a variety of ways, uh, creative ways, for the betterment of the human species. However, there's a dark side to this, which you're aware of because of our recent uh, explosion of a well in the Gulf of Mexico, leaving uh, 11 people dead which was preceded by the Piper Alpha North Sea oil platform explosion in 1988 that killed 167 people. And one might ask, why do we tolerate these repeated tragic accidents? And I would suggest that we tolerate them because however great the human cost may be, we calculate that cost as a necessary cost for the procurement of oil. We tolerate these accidents because we need oil. And of course, this is not the first time that such a thing has happened. Oil was first commercially exploited in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859, uh, an interesting coincidence in that it's the same year in which uh, Charles Darwin uh, published his theory of evolution. And 
considering that both we and all other organisms on the planet are products of evolution, I think it's very important for us to remember that oil has a history and um, that uh, it, it was simply uh, not placed here by some miraculous fiat, uh, although some would argue uh, that oil was um, placed here by God for our use. Um, uh, some have asked the question, if that's the case, then why did God put our oil under Islamic sand? This um, figure here illustrates uh, an early blowout, not in 1859, but not long afterwards, showing that we have been experiencing accidents in petroleum production for quite a while. Now, if you take a look uh, at this picture of a cow uh, raised for beef production, how much oil do you see in this picture? That may seem an odd question until you consider that it takes 4.748 barrels of oil to raise a steer uh, through the, um, the cultivation of the pasture, uh, transportation, and everything involved in raising a steer uh, to bring it to market. The annual production of beef in the United States consumes more than 158 million barrels of crude oil, which is a very large investment. If you take a look at a desk lamp, as in this picture, how much fossil fuel oil, uh, fossil fuel is represented here? Well, James Kunstler in The Long Emergency, surviving the, oil, the end of oil, climate change, and other converging catastrophes of the 21st century, suggests that your desk lamp burning for 10 minutes represents nine years worth of prehistoric sunlight stored by a patch of Jurassic ferns. Similarly, if you look at this picture of um, an open heart surgery procedure, you might ask how many barrels of oil are represented here with all the electricity involved in the hospital, the plastics, all the instruments, the dozens of years of medical school training, and so forth. Again, we have a very large petroleum investment in human health. If you look at a freeway, such as Interstate 80 in Berkeley, um, this is one of our major parking lots, the on-ramp to the Bay Bridge. You can see that there are thousands of years of sunlight represented in all these cars idling and commuting to work. Or take a plane flight. Uh, most of us came to the ASA meeting by air, I would suggest. And uh, an air flight represents many, many years of sunlight uh, stored in prehistoric eras and then made available to us um, through the chemical energy of petroleum. Now, food and electricity and surgery and cars and international travel, these are all human goods. And no one is here to deny the value of these goods or to suggest that it was not a good thing that humans learn to exploit petroleum and coal and gas uh, and, and better the human state in that way. However, we have to remember that our civilization now is very heavily premised upon the transportation of goods, the manufacture and transportation of goods with fossil fuels from many distant countries and uh, distributed to big box stores uh, here in, in, in our country and then ultimately to our own homes. And all of this is premised upon plentiful and uh, cheap petroleum 
which cannot last forever. The United States economy consumes 10,000 gallons of oil every second of every day, or 7 to 8 billion barrels per year. The 4.3 billion barrel Bakken shale oil deposit in Montana would supply the Earth, uh, sorry, would supply the U.S. for less than a year. We use 60 billion cubic feet of natural gas every day. Stacked on top of each other, those cubic feet would reach from here to the moon and back 25 times every day. 20 rail cars of coal are burned for electricity every minute in the United States. A coal train of 100 rail cars is burned every five minutes. When you consider this in historical perspective, looking at this diagram stretching from 3000 BC to 7000, um, you see that uh, the age of oil uh, can, will occupy basically 200 years. So we have a very great spike. Uh, in world oil production, virtually all the, the oil in the earth will be produced and used, uh, 3 billion barrels of it, uh, sorry, 3 trillion barrels of it, uh, in the uh, roughly 200 years in, this, in the center of this diagram, which leads one to wonder what the future of humanity will be after the oil is no longer so plentifully available to us. One of the earliest thinkers to discover or, or think about the uh, end of oil was M. King Hubbard of Shell Oil in Houston. He came to the conclusion that oil is a finite resource, not being continuously produced in the crust of the earth, and his predictions in 1956 were that oil production would peak in the United States around 1970, and in fact, he was right on target in that. He also predicted that world oil production would peak in the early years of the 21st century, uh, actually around 2000, and he was off by uh, a small margin because of uh, circumstances that he hadn't foreseen. But it seems very clear that we're approaching the end of affordable oil, um, or, uh, approaching the peak of affordable oil now, following which we'll begin the slide down the other side of Hubbard's Peak into increasing costs of fuel. If you look at the diagram here of United States oil production, the total oil available is the area under the curve that Hubbard uh, spoke about. And you can see that now we are uh, roughly two-fifths of the way down the other side of the curve of U.S. oil production, bearing out his prediction. In the next slide, on world oil production, you can see that we have um, a few peaks um, which reflect circumstances such as the 1974 oil embargo um, and then the, the discovery um, of more fields in uh, uh, the Middle East. The 2010 peak and the 2023 crisis suggest that between these years, we're going to be reaching the peak and then uh, by 2044, we'll reach half of the maximum of oil production. So right now, we are entering what we consider the danger zone, where we have the intersection of increasing human demand for oil and decreasing availability. There is, of course, disagreement um, among experts about how much oil there is. But if you look at these 20 or so estimates, 
that were made between 1959 and the present, um, the average seems to be, uh, the average uh, amount of oil assumed uh, seems to be about two billion, uh, two, two trillion barrels available. And there seems to be little disagreement about that average. The concern with population is that as we, uh, as you, you can see here, the population line um, seems to be inexorably rising towards 9 billion in 2050, at the same time that oil will begin falling off uh, in availability within a decade or so, leading us to the gap between um, the human population and the, and the available energy to fuel its lifestyle. Some have argued that uh, oil-producing countries suggest that there's more oil than they actually uh, than we actually see produced. And if you look at this diagram about the Kuwaiti reserves, you see that Kuwait claims increasing reserves even while production has been declining uh, since 1990 rather steadily. Now, the thing about OPEC is that the countries involved in OPEC um, earn the right to, to produce oil based on what they claim is reserves. So one has to be careful in thinking about what they actually uh, about the correlation between what they claim they have and what they actually have. So the diagram that we have here um, extrapolates population to 9 billion in 2050, and it gives two possible scenarios for, um, for the decline of oil and how we might deal with it. The first is the catastrophic um, drop-off of oil um, with an attendant catastrophic drop-off in population from the current 7 billion down to whatever may be the solar carrying capacity of the planet, uh, 2 to 3 or 4 billion, um, and suggests that if we don't do anything to, to find renewables, to, to bring renewables online, uh, to look into nuclear, uh, to look into population reduction, uh, there will be this uh, very draconian uh, a shift in population. Um, and in contrast to that, we have the more gentle slope um, in which we suggest that uh, if we begin to uh, move very quickly into renewables um, and, and bring them online in a way that is uh, actually workable in conjunction with population uh, decrease through education, that we might be able to forestall a good bit of suffering. I'd like to point out the case of the island of Tikopia that Jared Diamond points out, uh, that Jared Diamond uh, discusses in his book Collapse. Um, Tikopia is a very small island in the South Pacific, uh, about uh, three kilometers wide, with a population of 1,500 people that managed to maintain uh, stability in its population but only through very draconian measures of infanticide and suicide by canoe, uh, frequently practiced by uh, the elderly and others who decided that uh, they needed to move off the island uh, and leave room for others. The lessons from Tikopia are several. There is a demographic absolute. Human population cannot grow infinitely on any finite land mass. 
Secondly, uh, resource economics suggests that we take a lesson from Tikopia in which, uh, or where resources were finite, and where, um, by analogy, the Earth as an island has finite resources and fossil fuels. Oil uh, has limits. Thirdly, societies have a choice, it seems to me. We either take voluntary measures to limit our population um, and bring it into line with the solar carrying capacity of the Earth, or we will face draconian choices later, or the population will be brought down by famine, um, disease, and, and uh, resource wars. All of these, of course, we would hope to avoid. Um, in this uh, slide here, we have um, a typical picture of suburbia, where you have thousands of houses lined up um, and uh, thousands of cars going from those houses every day to the workplace. Uh, people have very long commutes um, to and from work, and uh, all of this is based upon the availability of uh, a lot of uh, cheap oil, uh, affordable oil. Agriculture, likewise, is premised upon uh, available and plentiful uh, fuel for planting, cultivating, harvesting, transporting, processing, and so forth. And our modern agriculture would not survive very long without um, plentiful, cheap petroleum. So the question really is um, that of population in relation to resources. Can the Earth really handle 18 billion people or 180 billion people? Um, recently, uh, Dick McDonald and I gave this talk in uh, Philadelphia at a conference, and we had argued for the carrying capacity to the planet being in the range of two to three billion people. We were followed by a conservative um, pair of researchers from Spain who argued that the theoretical carrying capacity of the planet was 180 billion people based solely on the need for water. The um, discussion was brought to a halt when one uh, distinguished scholar asked um, whether they intended everybody to sit 12 deep on each other's shoulders and we would simply hand the water, water bottles up to them. So the issue really is not one of running out completely so much as, as it is not having enough to keep our economy running. In this regard, the ramifications of peak oil for our civilization are similar to the ramifications of dehydration for the human body. The human body is 70% water. Because water is so crucial to everything the human person does, the body of a 200-pound man doesn't need to lose all 140 pounds of water weight before collapsing due to dehydration. A loss of as little as 10 to 15 pounds of water may be enough to kill him. In a similar sense, an oil-based economy such as ours doesn't need to deplete its entire reserve of oil before it begins to collapse. A shortfall between demand and supply as little as 10 to 15 percent is enough to wholly shatter an oil-dependent economy and reduce its citizenry to poverty. The coming oil shocks won't be so short-lived. They represent the onset of a new permanent condition once the decline gets underway, production will drop conservatively by 3% per year every year. 
war, terrorism, extreme weather, and other above-ground geopolitical factors will likely push the effective decline rate past 10% per year, thus cutting the total supply by 50% in seven years. This is taken from one of the websites that I included on the uh, peak oil bibliography that I passed out to you, lifeaftertheoilcrash.net. It's a rather uh, sober take on the issues, but um, well worth looking at, uh, along with um, some of the other websites that I've included. So what about renewables? This is a, uh, an important question, and uh, Ken Turian has already broached some of these issues in the previous session, and there will be future sessions in this conference on them. First of all, let me say that renewables must be part of the total plan. That's very clear. However, there are problems with renewables, which I'm sure will be explored uh, in this conference and elsewhere. Twice the currently cultivated farmland would be needed to produce ethanol for the current American fleet of automobiles with no land left over to grow food. What, one may ask, will we do about uh, the demand for uh, automotive fueling when we, are at, when we stand at 400 million people in this country? Food prices are already rising in Mexico due to competition from biofuel production. Uh, corn, uh, corn for tortillas is not as available when you use corn for ethanol. Renewables, still based on cheap fossil fuels for manufacture and installation, uh, are required for uh, the development of solar panels, windmills, tidal turbines, geothermal wells, and other infrastructure. You may remember from Scripture, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which we have slightly modified here, resource wars, famine, epidemic disease, and ecologically forced migration. We see these as almost inevitable if humanity does not take some strides right now to begin curbing its population growth and bringing it to a sustainable level based on uh, the, the solar carrying capacity of the Earth. If you look at the diagram here with the population energy gap, we have uh, two to three billion people who will not be able to be supported uh, by 2100 with the projected decline in energy. Um, and that, that we call the population energy gap, which is very concerning to us in terms of um, the, uh, how it will, it will impinge upon human rights, upon uh, basic needs, and so forth. So how do we engineer a soft landing? We suggest um, six points, six areas that need to be looked at. First of all, population education. Religious and cultural changes, including the education of women, will be essential, allowing women to take control of their own fertility and promoting responsible fatherhood throughout the world. Stable families can be smaller families. Second, electrification and energy replacement. We need to use existing technology um, such as uh, European-style diesel cars, which pollute far less than the, their American uh, counterparts and which are more fuel efficient. We need to use nuclear, solar, wind, and many other um, energy sources as climate and city size dictate. Third, changing habitation patterns or relocalization. There are numerous books on this topic. We need to develop smaller, more manageable cities. 
abandoned the suburban commute model as the paradigm for American living. And some areas in the country may need to be abandoned altogether, areas that are uh, persistently cold for many months out of the year or persistently hot for many months in the summer. Fourth, transportation. We should think about the gradual supplementation of uh, international air travel with uh, fast ships. I know this sounds hopelessly romantic, but um, we might really begin to think what technology can do with um, um, travel by sea rather than by air. We need to replace our, our car commutes with high-speed intercity rail networks and uh, our, uh, our city commutes with light rail to uh, replace some buses and certainly trucking. Fifthly, sustainable agriculture. We need less reliance on petrochemicals and machinery, a shift towards organic farming methods, perhaps with more human and animal input, and a move toward hydroponic greenhouse technology. Finally, related to this, we need uh, to think about potable water and how water will be lost due to climate change uh, as the world's glaciers uh, melt. And we may need to move into large-scale desalination, which, of course, will require a great deal of energy at a time when energy is becoming scarce. As I conclude, let me propose a modified Pascalian wager. What if our assumptions about Hubbard's Peak are wrong? What if oil is not running out now? We answer with a modified Pascalian wager. If we're wrong about the peak, and it turns out to have uh, to be a generation further down the road than we anticipate. We still have everything to gain in starting now to curb population growth and to develop alternative energy sources. In fact, acting now will make it considerably more likely that we'll be able to engineer a soft landing. If we're correct about the peak occurring sometime between 2007 and 2017 or 20, and if in, in the face of that we resist making any meaningful changes to the way of life that we enjoy today, we have everything to lose. We face the grim future outlined above. We owe it to ourselves and our children, to our neighbors and our planet mates, and most importantly to the creator of this wondrous ecosystem from which we have evolved, not to let that eventuality come to pass. In conclusion, people of religious and ethical values must consider the fate of the poor in decisions involving survivability and sustainability. Target goals include population education and policy shifts favoring ethical, sustainable reduction, replacement of lost energy with nuclear-generated electricity and with realistic renewables, changing habitation patterns, changing, rail trans uh, changing from rail transportation, um, sorry, changing to rail transportation from private automotive transportation, improving and sustaining our agriculture, and replacing uh, replacement of potable water through desalination. The last slide, again, uses a, a cartoon from Bazaar where a woman in a preschool is saying, now I'd like each of you to tell me what you would have liked to be when you grow up and had your, predece had your predecessors not doomed you to a catastrophic wasteland. As a teacher and someone who works with children in my own son's schools, I like to model hope. And I would argue the four following terms. Life on Earth is ancient, and fossil fuels have a history. All species, including Homo sapiens, are subject to biological limits. 
We must recognize the balance between biological constraints and human transcendence. And we should model hope, resilience, and imagination. And to this, I would add one final point. And that is that we must model our faith in God's unimaginable plans for God's creation. Thank you.